0: Well, good morning. Welcome to the crossing. So great that you're here today. And just love that we get to honor veterans. Honestly, like that is just like Jeff said, just amazing uh, service. And it just feels like we need to, to mention that again. And I want to welcome a special group of people today. As many of you know, we have a lot of people that watch us online. So let's say hello, those of you that are sitting in your living rooms or at the beach or wherever. Uh, you are today. We love, in all honesty, the technology that allows us to be able to do that. And we have locations in St. George, in West Henderson, and in a few weeks, Midtown. Finally, we'll come online and we'll be part of that. So that's... Awesome. But we have, a, we have a, a thing that we do here called microsites. And really the St. George location is kind of formed out of a microsite. It's just groups of people who come together um, in different locales um, for different reasons why they're in the same place together. And they take our service and they stream our service. And Michael Dean, um, one of our staff members, is heading that out. And, and we have a new microsite that's getting ready to, to launch in Perump, where we got some folks that are out there that have been driving in that are going to do that. And then we have some folks. It's awesome. A little Perump applause. Doesn't happen a lot, but a little bit. We have some folks that are here today from TLC, which is a home that that they 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 have a service every week um, that they are a part of, and they decided to make the journey. So I don't know where they are in the room today, but they are here. And so let's just welcome. Oh, there they are, way over there. There they are. Awesome. So glad to have these folks here with us. They watch us via the stream, so now they know that we really exist and we are here. So. It's so great. So it's awesome that we get to use technology and leverage it in a way where it it can continue to expand what we are doing. And so we're so grateful for that. Well, if you have been at the crossing a short period of time, you missed out on something. And here's what you missed out on. There was this amazing man, amazing pastor, who in semi-retirement came on our staff and he just became... A sage, just a source of wisdom for so many of us on our staff and so many of you that were a part of the crossing. His name was Tim Coop. And Tim was outstanding, just an outstanding guy. He passed away a few years ago on Christmas Eve. Leave it to Tim to depart on Christmas Eve. And I just used to love hanging out with Tim. I mean, we got to travel around the world a few times, and I would love when people would come in for counseling because we used to send all the young couples that needed counseling because they were having rocky stuff going on. we just sent them to Tim because Tim was such a sage, and he, and he just had this kindness, but he also, he didn't, he didn't mince any words, so he would just look at you and be like, yeah, you're selfish. You need to change that. And, and I was just like, man, I want to be able to do that. And he just had the ability to do that. And, and we just used to say, like some, you know, we say WWJD, what would Jesus do? We used to say, WWCD, what would Coop do? Because we, we would always think in situations, what would Coop do? And in hanging out with him, he impressed so much wisdom. But there's one statement that really I latched onto, to. And I, and I think he must have repeated it to me a few times. Maybe he thought I needed it. But it was a great statement, and it just has resonated with me. And it really sets the table for what I want to talk about in our time together this morning. This is what Coop would say to me. He would say, you don't always need to learn something new. You just need to remember what you already know. And we can just be done now, right? But that's so true. We need the ability to be reminded. Now, many of us, we have apps that we use to remind us of appointments or things we need to do or tasks. Or maybe you've got like an Alexa or a Google Home in your house and you can talk to it and tell you. I always talk to my watch now. I've learned how to do that. Like, remind me to do this. Or maybe you're old school and you've got a yellow pad. And a sharpie. Don't hate. That's cool. And you, you're every morning, you're writing stuff down, and you love to cross something off when you get it done. But there's a level of remembering. There are reminders that we need that go way beyond picking up milk on the way home from work. Because at a spiritual level, at a life level, there's, there's a place for remembering that we can't miss. It's, and really the main idea for today is this. Is that forgetfulness is the greatest enemy of our faith. That when we are forgetful of what God has done, what God is doing, what he will do, it becomes the greatest enemy of our the building and the ongoing level of faith that we've had. Now, we've been in this series the last few weeks called Signs. And this entire series has been one reminder after another. It, within the series, we've been dissecting Jesus' miracles. And they're miracles, but we haven't really even looked as much at the wow factor perspective. But we've also been looking at... What, what does it mean? What, is, what, is, what he did, what does it mean? And from that perspective. And since we began this series, water, for whatever reason, has seemed to play a bit of a preeminent role. You remember week one, Shane talked about turning water into wine. And like fabulous wine, like not two buck chuck wine, like stellar wine. I'm just telling you the story. Remember they said, why have you saved the best for last? And then a few weeks ago, we learned about the miracle where the man was laying by the water. And Jesus said, you've got to get in the water in order to be healed. And and the guy said, you've got to get in the water. And he wouldn't get in the pool. And I have a weird relationship with pools and water. Because I grew up in Arizona, and I could not swim. And so I I just was scared enough the water. It probably had something to do with the fact that I had two older sisters, and they terrorized me. We had a, we, we a doughboy pool in the backyard. Most of my friends had built-ins. And my dad, after a few years of the doughboy, the above ground, he literally brought a tractor home and he dug a huge hole in our backyard and put the pool down into the ground. That says something about me. says something about my childhood. It's okay. But I, I don't know. I just developed this fear of water. So I would get in the pool, but my dad would make me hang on to an inner tube. And so I would hang on to the inner tube, and I would kick around, and my, my, my sisters were, were good swimmers, and so they would go under the water every once in a while, and they, would gra- they found it funny to grab onto my ankles and to yank me out of the inner tube down into the water. I was terrorized, I know, I was terrorized, and people would have parties, I would be that guy. So when my friends would have pool parties, I'd be sitting with the old people off to the side while everybody's in the pool because I just couldn't do it. Now listen, I've, over time, I can, like if I come to your house, you invite me, I can play Marco Polo with you in the backyard in your pool. It's all good. I can get across and do all that stuff. But I'm telling you, people have said to me, like, you run, you should do tries." I'm like, I can't do triathlons. I can't, I, I will drown, right? I've actually told my wife, if we are on a cruise and we're in the middle of the ocean and the boat goes, just save yourself. Like, don't, don't even try, because I can't float, I can't tread water, I can't do any of those things at all. But we find this reference to water... Throughout Scripture. And throughout the Scripture, it's interesting because water has both this life-giving and this we need it to live, but it also can actually be intimidating and even life-taking, right, if we're not careful. And so there's this really interesting relationship that the people in Scripture had with water. They needed it. It was valuable. It was life-giving, but it was intimidating and life-threatening. And so today, I want to take you out on the water. Literally out on the water. And we're going to be in John chapter 6. And this miracle we're going to talk about, this sign today, just to give you context, and we were there last week, this happens immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000. More than 5,000 people. 5,000 men and then whoever else was there. And right next to the Sea of Galilee. So this has just taken place, and that's where we pick up the story. It says in verse 16, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. And by now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. Now Matthew, Matthew has an account of Jesus' life, and Mark as well. We call them Gospels. They also told this story. And so when we look at Matthew's story, he actually made it a little bit, uh, he told us a little bit more. He said that Jesus forced them that he made them get in the boat. He said, go that way and I will catch up eventually. Which tells me, as Jesus' pattern was, that he really needed to be alone. That he needed some alone time, some replenishment time. And so he sent them out across the water. And actually on the hills around the Sea of Galilee. You can still see them today. This is what's called the Eremos Cave. All right? And this, this may or may not have been the cave, but it's an example of a cave that Jesus might have left the crowds and gone up into to get away from the elements and to be alone. It was only about 5 foot by 10 foot. And so he would have been up there while the disciples were going out into the water. But let's be honest about what we just observed. Don't miss this point. What we're about to see is that Jesus basically pointed them into turmoil. He sent them out into turmoil. He sent them in that direction. So if you're here, you're listening, and you're still trying to figure this Jesus thing out, i got to be honest with you, and some people won't tell you this, but obeying Jesus does not equal smooth sailing. A lot of us can testify to that. Sometimes I think we're under the false premise that if we just follow Jesus, everything's going to be great, right? And it's, it's not the way that it works, just because something is uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not critical or needed. And the disciples are out on the water and they are starting to get very uncomfortable. By sun, now it's dark, it's sunset and the disciples are out in the middle of the sea and maybe from his spot Jesus could maybe make out what was going on. But then what happened as they reached the middle is a strong wind. A strong wind began to blow and the waters grew rough. They're out in the middle and a storm happens. Now listen, this is easy for us to just go, yeah, 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 get to the point. No, no, no. I want you to feel what they're feeling. It's three or four in the morning. They're on a vessel. It's dark. And when I say it's dark, I don't mean like You know, the the lights along the lake are in the distance. I mean, they don't have any light. It's dark. There may have been some moonlight if there was no clouds. And all of a sudden, the wind starts howling. And when the wind starts howling, they can't even hear each other. They can hardly, they're shouting to each other over the wind. And and the water is starting to move. So the wind brings the waves. And the water is getting really rough. And it's lapping up over the side. So now, they are getting extremely wet as the boat bounces around. It is intimidating. There are no life jackets There is no evacuation plan. There is no rescue boat that is coming to bail them out. They must keep going. They are grinding. They are in the middle of the storm. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, come on. They're gone three or four miles. Then they see Jesus approaching the boat. This is the part that we all are familiar with. Walking on the water. And they were frightened. Now, okay, that word frightened does not even begin to really translate what they really were, right? It wasn't like, ooh, what's that? Okay. Our better translation would be, they were freaking out, right? Matthew tells us that they thought that they saw a ghost. They are terrified. Now in the Old Testament, the word for sea, as in Sea of Galilee, was the word yom. And yom was also the name of a Canaanite deity. And this deity called yom represented chaos. That's why we see so many times in the Old Testament that God is slaying or piercing or crushing yom. We see this when the Israelites cross through The Red Sea, through the waters of the Red Sea. They are crossing through Yom. So when Jesus walks on water, he is basically treading over chaos. Treading over chaos. But when he said to them, let's go back, verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid, okay, and they were willing to take him into the boat. So they took him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. I have no idea what walking on the water may be like, nor do you. But these shoes just came out literally last week. I'm prepping this message, and these shoes came out. They're pretty cool. No, you have no idea. So what they did is they made this It's a fine-looking shoe. But they took water from the Sea of Galilee. And they injected it into this blue sole of the shoe. And they're selling it as a shoe. And they're saying, you too can walk on water. I believe there's a Bible verse right there. All right. Come on. I should be wearing those today. Now, I've never walked in the water, you know, but we've been wet, right? We've been in the water. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were privileged to get to run in the Marine Corps Marathon. So Marines in the room, way to go. Uh, it was awesome. They call it the People's Marathon. And they're clapping for you, not for me. And they, um, we get to run through Washington, D.C. It was awesome. So we had trained and planned and all that. There's so much stuff that goes into actually going and running, for some reason, 26 miles. And so you're there, and the forecast says it's going to rain, like, hard. On that Sunday, two weeks ago. But my wife's like, we're going to pray. And I'm like, okay, we're going to pray. And she like really believes. I don't believe at all. I'm like, it's going to rain. You know what I mean? I'm like, I have no faith, right? Sure enough, I was right. Um, And so (laughs) we wake up on Sunday morning. It's like 4.30 in the morning. and We got to go in to where the Pentagon, to where there's 40,000 runners and they're all there. And it is pouring rain, like sideways rain. And we're all huddled around. They actually did a chapel service and they were doing worship and somebody was preaching. And it was packed with people because it was covered. So they all just went in and they went to church because it was away from the rain. And, it was, and we got to the start line and we're like, it's, it's got to stop and it doesn't stop. For three hours, we're running in sideways rain. This is the best picture to tell you how wet it was. This is my wife at mile 10. There you go, right? <laughs> I mean, it's so wet. She just stops and goes. I am. So. I had one gal. I'm running right in front of the Capitol, and she stops. We're all running, thousands of us. And she just does the Shawshank moment. She just stands back and just puts her arms out, and just we. You, if you've ever been so wet that you don't even know you're wet anymore, right? You're just so. It's like your skin and your clothes are just one piece. Your shoes. The roads are so covered that you stopped even trying to run around puddles. You're just. You're running through, not walking, on water. This is what we know about this story, is that basically, let me just give you the summary. It'll help you. The disciples waited till evening. They got into their boat. They started to head for the opposite shore to Capernaum. A storm comes up about three or four miles in. They are freaking out. Jesus walks on the water towards them. They freak out some more. Finally, they invite him. Jesus gets in the boat, and immediately the boat is back on dry land. The end. No more explanation needed or is there. Because what exactly is the point? That Jesus had just fed 5,000 people. And at the end of that story, what's interesting is he has they, are 12, they collect 12 baskets of leftover bread. So basically, each of the disciples gets in the boat with a personal message from Jesus. That I will provide you with a personal, tailor-made basket of provision. Literally, I am your bread of life. And it's so interesting that they watch this miracle and they see this provision. And right after hearing this truth within hours, the truth that God will provide for us when we are in need, a storm comes and blows in. Because here's the truth, and this is true if you're watching, listening, or you're in the room. Here's the deal. We are either in a storm right now or you're leaving a storm. You're near the end or you're about to head into one. That's how storms work. It doesn't matter if you're urban or suburban, you're wealthy or poor, you're educated or not. At all times, we're either stepping into a difficult and tumultuous time, we're standing in the middle of it, or maybe we're starting to step out the backside of it. It's kind of the normal life cycle. I like to write thoughts on napkins. So I brought my napkin today. I was, last week I was thinking about this, and I just started drawing this with my Sharpie. And this, this just may not be true of you. I, I think it probably is. But I just kind of scribble this down. Like this is this is a typical life, life cycle when it comes to storms. It just really is. Here's, here's, here's how it goes: storms happen in your life. You raise your hand, you go, yes, I understand it, right? Winds, waves, all that. Then we freak. I'm in a storm, what's going on? Then Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up in our storms, you'd think we'd be happy, but actually, initially a lot of us freak out again, right? Like, What does this mean? Why is he here right now? Okay. Then, hopefully, we get a little bit of perspective and we go, okay, God is here. He's here. He's providing us. So the storm subsides. doesn't mean the storm goes away, but maybe internally and in ourselves we're able to process, okay, God is with me. I can get through this. And then maybe a bit of calm comes into our life. That's sort of the cycle. The the challenge is, is that it repeats over and over again right? Storms happen. We freak. Jesus shows up. We freak again. We gain perspective. Storm calms. We calm down. Boom, again. I don't know if that's you, but that's kind of how it is. And listen, as followers of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, we are not immune. Announcement. You should not be surprised or you should not view storms as being unexpected. And don't be embarrassed when they come. You and I can probably see ourselves sitting on that boat with the disciples in the dark in the middle of your night. You may be today in a position where you see your life sitting on that boat. Here you are. You're straining. I mean, you are straining. The wind in your life is blowing so hard. You are spinning because the waves are rocking your life, and you're trying to keep it all together, and and you are spinning this way and that. You're straining to make life work. Just, I just need it to work. You're straining against financial challenges and how do we make the numbers work out. You're straining to get through another day, another week in one piece. I get it. You're straining. Maybe you're a young person. You're straining to prove yourself or to find yourself. Maybe you're sitting here and you're straining just to keep your marriage together. Maybe you're straining in the, in the issues in your body and your health. Or maybe you're just spinning. Maybe you're just spinning. You know, you're overworked, over, overbooked, overwhelmed. You're stressed out. You're nuts. You're insane. No time maybe to pray. Barely time to think. Our culture has impressed upon us this equation. They say the busier you are, the more important you are. You, you have a conversation maybe in the lobby today. A conversation like, this. Hey, hey, Bill, how you doing? Oh, man, I'm busy. And then you say, "Oh yeah, I know. I'm su- I'm su- oh man, I'm super busy." You're like, really? You're bu- yeah, I'm. I'm busier than busy. I'm so busy. How busy are you? I'm. I'm just. Man, I, life is busy. Like if you ever just went, "Yeah, I'm not busy. I'm just. I'm kind of bored actually this week." I think the other person would just walk away. Like I don't even know what to talk about at this point, right? Because busyness has become a source of pride. And a source of value that we believe the busier we are, the more more important we are. So we wear it like a badge. And we find ourselves in these storms. But because we're spinning or because the wind is blowing, being still is really hard for us. And that is where our faith is formed. And that is where our faith flourishes. Rich Veloge said this, our faith must be walked out. We've got to live it out. We've got to walk it out. But walked out from a place of sitting with God. That our faith takes action as we pause and we sit with God. That doesn't mean the wind and the waves stop. I'm talking about in the middle of the winds and the waves and it's blowing and it's rolling that you're able to go, I'm going to get still. I'm going to get still. I'm going to see what God's up to. And when we do that, when we can get still, then I believe that the winds and the waves can actually produce something positive in our life. Here's the first thing that they produce. All the winds that you experience, all the waves, the storms in your life have the ability to produce maturity in your faith. Sometimes I think we picture mature faith as like a dude in a suit and tie. Right, well, a lot of knowledge, a lot of discipline. He's got a suit and tie. That dude's got faith, right? No. I'm, I'm haunted by this. Just This has messed with me a little bit. So you, you think how... you you see what you think about it, from his book, My Bright Abyss, a great book, this guy, Christian Wilman, he wrote these thoughts about faith and life. He said, whatever faith you emerge with at the end of your life is going to be not simply affected by that life, but intimately dependent upon it, what you lived out. Then he says this, this is a challenging part for me. If you believe at 50 what you believe at 15, then you have not lived or have denied the reality of your life. What he's saying is, our faith matures. And you say, well, Lee, what about, Jesus said, childlike faith. Yes, childlike faith, but not childish faith. It's it's where we experience life. And what happens as we experience life and seasons and storms and winds and waves, guess what happens? Life gets more complex, right? Right? it gets complicated. It gets challenging. And when we begin to see God in the middle of those complexities, and when we begin to discover God in the midst of those challenges, that's when our faith actually matures as we experience those things. And sometimes our faith even takes us to points, or our life journey even takes us to points where our faith is kind of under siege, where we're not sure the way forward. Tim Keller said this. He said, the story of Scripture And of great saints throughout history, acknowledges that someone can be supremely faithful and yet still struggle with faith. Maturity of faith is not simply a knowledge thing, it's a storm thing. Here's how how I like to think about it the faith of our head, which is important, knowledge is important, don't hear me wrong. It's gained through knowledge. We, we learn. We study scripture. We, we're, we're growing in what we know about God and who God is. But the faith of our heart is gained through storms. What happens in here in our soul is gained through storms. And the winds and the waves of life have a way of reminding us of that. Remember, forgetfulness is the greatest enemy of faith. Some of us just need to remember what we already know what we've already experienced in the storm. Because in the howling winds of our lives and the rocking waves of our days walks Jesus. And you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Right? You don't realize it. You're good until he's all you got. And then it changes. And our faith matures. And as we view it that way, we begin to look at others differently as well. Because the winds and the waves that we experience in our lives not only create this, not only produce this maturity, but they also produce empathy. They also produce empathy. A few years back, I was on a staff at a church in Seattle. And during that time, it it was a complex situation. But one thing led to another, and da, da, da. And finally, eventually, after a very short period of time, I no longer was working at that church in Seattle. We call that FIRED. get real. So I'm, I'm, I'm living in Seattle with my family. I moved to Seattle to take this job. I no longer have the job. I don't know what to do. Winds blowing, howling, like waves. I'm underwater. And I'm at this 4th of July uh, picnic fireworks in our neighborhood where we were living there in Seattle trying to figure out what we're doing. And, I mean, in Seattle, man, they don't mess around. They don't have any of these, like, on the ground. Like, everything's like mortar shells going into the sky. Neighborhood's gather, So we've got food and we've got everything. And I, and I end up sitting next to this guy in our lawn chair, and we're just watching kids and watching the fireworks and talking for a while. And about an hour in, he leans over to me. I still remember. it, And he says, hey, man, he goes, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but he said, I lost my job five weeks ago, and I haven't even told my wife yet. He said, I've been getting up every day and like I'm going to work and I'm kind of going into the city and I'm trying to find a job. And my response was, I began to weep. I'm just looking at this guy and I'm seeing the mirror of my life. Now, let me tell you what my response would have been eh, two years earlier. I would have sat next to him and he would have shared that possibly. And I would have looked at him and I would have said, man, dude, I will pray for you. That's, that's really bad. I'm sorry, man. But you know what would have been going on in my head? You're an idiot. Like what's what's wrong with you? Like who loses their job? Like, get it together, man. Like, what'd you do wrong, man? You got to figure something out. Like, this is this isn't good. Like, I don't know what you I don't even know if I want to sit by you anymore. But because for the first time in my life, I had experienced what it was to be desperate, to be lost, to be straining, for the waves to be blowing. I looked at that guy and I knew empathetically exactly what was happening. What was going on, what was happening and churning in his gut, what he was experiencing when he laid his head on his pillow, when he woke up each morning, when he had to lie to his wife, when he got in his car and drove away. I understood that because that's what happened. Because shared storms create shared experience that allow us to then share our empathy for one another. That's what the storms really do. And empathy is not just, I get it. Empathy is... Man, I get it and I feel it and I've been there and done that. And so when we fail to be authentic, when we fail to talk to other people, to really be open about our storms and our pain, what really is happening is that then we're unable to sit with others when they're on the boat going through the wind and going through the waves. Because mature faith is produced by empathy. That's what happens in our lives. And when we fail to be authentic, it doesn't work. So don't show me your seasoned faith, all right? I love it, but don't show me your seasoned faith until you show me the storms that you have been through. Here's how Isaiah says it. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. Which leads us to our last point. Maturity, empathy, finally dependency. Man, when you're going through and you're grinding, right, you're rowing, not making much progress. The the shoreline you thought you were headed for seems like it's getting further away and not closer in your life, right? You're wet. Life's gotten you there. Winds and the waves will produce some dependency. People with the deepest dependency have been through the deepest waters, Those that are most dependent on Jesus have been through the deepest waters. And so can we depend on him? That's the question we might be asking instinctively. Does it work in real life? Can we depend on God in the middle of a storm? Can we depend on God when it gets really, really hard? Can we depend on God when our chronic anxiety comes back? Can we depend on God if we never get married again or never get married to begin with or we never are able to have kids? Can we? If we never quite have enough money to make it all work, can we depend on God if our kids don't or can't or won't go to college or do what we want him to do? Can we, can we depend on God to provide? And the answer to those terrifying questions is simply this. Jesus will always get in the boat. He will. This is, listen, this storm. This story really is not about Jesus walking on the water or storm. It really is about getting Jesus into the boat of our lives. Because forgetfulness is the greatest enemy of our faith. And when we talk about reminders, we need to know that that's a priority of God as well. That we know that you know, see, God's a party animal. I don't know if you knew that. You may not have read that in Scripture. Look for it this week. He really does. It's threaded throughout Scripture. God, God really loves a good party, and He would throw these regular parties. These what in the Scripture we call mandatory feasts. And they still celebrate them. They do. The Jewish people would celebrate these feasts on a regular basis, and they were established in order for the people to remember. They would come around and they would be reminded of what God was up to and and what God was doing. It's like Thanksgiving here in a few weeks, right? We're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. Maybe you'll gather with a few friends or family members. You'll eat some turkey. You'll watch football. You'll do those things. But really the point is, is that we are to, again, have that day where we are grateful, where we're thankful. Now some of you are like cynical Thanksgiving people. Shame on you, right? It's like, why do we have to be grateful just one day a year, right? Stop it. I get it, but listen, it's like these feasts that God put in place for his people. It's like, it doesn't hurt for us to have one day a year where it comes around every 12 months and we stop long enough to go, yes, we should be thankful and grateful. And hopefully that will push its way into the rest of our days and weeks and months ahead. And that's what these festivals were all about. They were reminding the Jewish people of God's faithfulness. And Josephus, the historian, said that their favorite feast was the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Tabernacles was designed to commemorate and for them to remember the wilderness wanderings. When the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness, specifically God's faithfulness to them during this time when they were walking around in circles. That's all they were doing. And it was a pretty interactive party because everyone would come out of their house and they would set up these little tents or booths and they would move into the front lawn. So the entire neighborhood would basically have this have this camping trip in their front lawn. And they did this because during the wilderness wanderings, their ancestors didn't have houses, but they God had promised them that they one day would and they depended on that promise. So they would move into these tents so that little Billy... And little Samantha would say, why are we sleeping in the front yard? And mom and dad would be able to tell them about God's faithfulness to their great, 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 great relatives way back in the day who didn't have houses. That's what would happen. So they live in these tents. And there would be two parades. Let me tell you about the first one. The first one happened every day they would, for six days. They would set up these huge candelabras, like huge. And every, when it would start to get dark, they would come and they would light these flames. And you could see them from all over, this, all over the vicinity. And the reason was is because it commemorated when God brought a pillar of fire to the Israelites in the wilderness. And they walked around and they didn't know which way to go. And it also reminded them that God was present. So in the darkness, this fire was lit up and people would celebrate. And Billy and Samantha would say, why do we light the fire? And mom and dad would remind them about the fire. But the second one was really cool. They'd have the second parade where the people would go with buckets every day and they would go to the Pool of Siloam and they would get water and they would walk it back into the city and it would be literally a parade because they would recite and sing songs and they would worship and there would be instruments and dance and they would bring all this water into the city. And the reason was because, there's water again, because water it represented when they were in the wilderness... And they needed it because they were so thirsty and God brought water from the rock and they were able to have provision and their needs were met. So every year they would do this parade. But the, but the last day of the feast, what they called the great day of the feast, the priests got involved. And they would take golden buckets. And they would go to the Pool of Siloam and they would bring the water in these gold buckets and they too would walk through the street and there would be worship and songs and all of that. But they would go to the temple They would go right to the altar and they would bring all these buckets and they would throw the water down on the temple. I was tempted to bring water and throw it all over the state. I almost did. You know I did. And they were all over And then they would fill it up to the point where there were inches of water all over the altar. And this was the moment in John chapter 7, right after Jesus fed the 5,000 and he walked on the water where he stood up. And they tell us that when he stood up in that moment that he probably was ankle deep in the water. And can you just imagine the disciples who were maybe off to the side? When they saw him standing there in the temple, ankle deep in water, they had to be flashing back to that dark night on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus came walking on the water. Now he's standing in the water. And as he's standing in the water, this is what Jesus says to the crowd that was gathered on this great day of remembrance. He says this to them, Let anyone who is thirsty, and he said it loud. He said, If you're thirsty, come to me and drink, because whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Here's what he's saying. This celebration is about me. You didn't know it, but I'm here. And I am the living water. So you can depend on me. If you're thirsty, I am the living water. If you're overwhelmed, I am the living water. If you're in the wind and it's howling, you can depend on me. If you're in the ways of your life, you can depend on me. Now, a lot of us, we have a lot of places we put our dependence ourselves primarily, our friends, our stuff, our influence, all of that. But most of the time, our misplaced dependence will leave us thirsty for more. We can't get it quenched because Jesus is the answer to the deep thirst we all have. That's why he walked on water, that's why he demonstrated his power over the chaos, the yom. In our life. He will always provide. He will always satisfy. So I want to ask you today. If you haven't, why not come into the calm? Let Jesus into the boat. I know it's a funny picture, but think about it. Boat of your life. Why not? Why are you out there? Why not Jesus? Why not Him? Why not depend on Him? Why not have Him beside you? as you navigate. The winds and the waves, they're not going away anytime soon, sorry. But why not have him next to you as you navigate those moments, as you go through them, as your faith grows, as your empathy grows. Let your dependence grow on him, remembering what you already know. Because he said this, let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Pray with me today, will you? Father, right now in this moment, We may be in the midst of waves and wind blowing hard. Some people that are listening, or they're in, they barely got in here today. It's howling in their lives. It's dark. God, and that's part of life, but God, we need you in it. We need you engaged. God, I pray for those who have put you at arm's length, who have kept you a distance, who haven't prioritized in the midst of the spinning of their life, the busyness, the activities, the self-dependence. Uh, God, I just pray that they would carve that out and invite you in to the spaces of their life, the stillness, the calmness that you want to bring in the midst of the chaos that we're so often pulled into. God, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful For that living water that you are. God, I'm grateful for people that are hungry for that. God, help us to remember today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.